someone said to me one time, well, you have to think about not just what's good for the pastures, but what's good for the cattle too. And I just thought, did you hear yourself? You know, how can you think about what's good for the pastures? What's best for the pastures is also going to be best for the cattle. If I want uh, lush grass, uh, that is, that's my goal, managing for optimum nutrition to come out of that grass. Welcome to the Soil Health Labs podcast, engaging ranchers, farmers, and researchers in the pursuit of healthy, functioning soils. Welcome back to another episode in the Soil Health Labs podcast. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And today we're featuring a Zoom interview that Buzz did with Jeannie Francis. Jeannie is a landowner in Wessington Springs, South Dakota. And we're also going to be coining a new term here, I believe, Buzz. Yeah, well, you know what NOLOs are, um, Barrett? A non-operating landowner. Non-operating landowner. Well, Jeannie is a silo. What's a silo, Buzz? Well, you told me what you thought a silo was. Well, I was way off. It's one of those things that hold grain. Well, it it is that, but if you capitalize silo, S-I-L-O, super involved landowner. (laughs) And then, what do you think? Well, we'll see if it catches on. I think this is going to catch. This is a new word. We can put it in the dictionary. So um, remember, you heard it on this podcast first. I'm I'm tempted to make the title of this podcast, NOLOs versus silos, but I don't know. Nobody will know what that means until well, they listen. Yeah, well, we'll see. So anyway, Jeannie Francis is a super involved landowner. Um, she tells her story, but bottom line is that um, she was uh, she was born in South Dakota, went to SDSU, and then spent 40 years in, in the big city, Chicago and Port, Portland, Oregon, uh, ra- raising a family and came back to her roots, the, her family land. And um, you'll hear her story. It's it's fantastic. Jeannie has a lovely sense of humor. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to read part of her email to me. Um, she was busy reviewing the um, podcast. And then she said, but then I had a friend come out from out of state to help me get rid of 222 kabillion g- tumbleweeds that blew into four miles of my fence line. Uh, did you see the videos I posted on Facebook? We figured out a process and made a pretty good dent in it before we had to leave. And when it was also time for me to start helping the local hunting lodge with guests. So I've spent the last week and a half doing 13 to 15 hours a day and then collapsing at night. So Jeannie is a very high energy person. She's very involved with her land. She doesn't own cattle, but uh, she talks a lot about um, the two um, uh, tenants that she has. And uh, I, I, um, I think this is a wonderful relationship and it's exemplary of how landowners and operators can work together. Yeah, well, very interesting journey going from South Dakota to Chicago to Portland and then back home to South Dakota. So I know you guys have a very interesting discussion here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, wait till the end of the podcast because she had something else uh, that she wanted to include, and that was props to her boys. But uh, I wanted to leave that at the end, that for the end. Buzz starting to throw in all these little uh, these little cliffhangers to keep the audience on their seat. I dig it. (laughs) 
All right, well, we'll hop out of the way and let you guys enjoy. Well, Jeannie Francis, welcome to the Growing Resilience podcast. It's so good to have you on. Um, I know you by reputation uh, from your grassland video shoot. Um, so, so that's my frame of reference. And I hope that um, you, you don't mind if we repeat some of the stuff that you talked about on that video shoot with, with Joe Dickey. But uh, Jeannie, you're not the typical landowner. Um, and I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of your background um, and how you got to be out in Wessington Springs. <laughs> Yes, thank you, Joe. I uh, grew up at, by Woonsocket, which is about 20 miles uh, away from Western Springs, and uh, spent my growing up years there, graduated from high school there, and then I went to South Dakota State University. My parents actually bought this place in the early 1960s, and uh, they had a renter on here. The same renter was on this place for about 35 years, and... Um, I always uh, loved the place, and, and uh, my parents uh, gave me the option, uh, actually after I graduated from college, if I wanted to come back and, and work here or if I wanted to uh, move on. But anyway, I went to make a long story short, I went to the big city and uh, to see how the other half lives and ended up raising my family there <clears throat> for, uh, you know, what was like almost 40 years of uh, living in the city in different places. And uh, my, I took care of my mom for her last five years of her life in uh, Naples, Florida. And uh, then I uh, had the option, I, I inherited this place and had the option to come back and actually had the option to do whatever I wanted to do. And uh, I came back and I feel like I'm living the dream. I've, uh, I was an animal science major at South Dakota State University. And uh, cattle, I showed cattle in 4-H when I was growing up and uh, open class as I got older. And uh, that was kind of my life. We had purebred shorthorn cattle back in those days. So um, yeah, I always loved them and felt like I was making a sacrifice when I left and am just happy to be back. Well, that's amazing. So uh, you lived uh, uh, when you were in the big city, was it mainly in Florida? No, actually. For four years, I lived in Chicago for four years, <clears throat> and then I met my husband there, got married, and moved to, uh, after a couple of years, we moved to Portland, Oregon. Okay. So I, my kids were raised in Portland, Oregon, and that's still pretty much home to them. Yeah. What uh, made you want to come back to the land? I mean, was there a sense of disconnection? Did you want to reconnect with the land? What was that about? Absolutely. There was a sense of disconnection, and uh, yeah, I... Uh, I was homesick for 10 years after I left. I, with every change of the seasons when I lived in the city, I would, uh, I just was missing the change of seasons. When you're in the city, nothing changes with the seasons. And when you're on the land, everything changes with the seasons. There's different cycles, different things you do when the seasons change. So that was a huge adjustment for me. Yeah, I always wanted to come back. I think it's in your blood, you know. I always tell people uh, some, you know, they're, yeah, it, it's in your blood. It was in my blood. Oh, that's fantastic. So yeah. walk me through, um, you know, 
the first one or two years of your returning to the land. Walk me through that learning process. Uh, what got you interested in the kind of thing that you're doing now, the rotational grazing? I know you had a, um, a, a tenant who was a great grass grower. Uh, mm -hmm. Sounded like a good one, and then I think he he may have passed away. So right, yeah, yeah. My dad passed away in 1998, and he had not been involved in the operation of the place for quite a few years after that because his health was bad, his his eyesight was bad. So our tenant was a you know very trusted uh, land manager, and he passed away. No, my dad passed away in 97, and our our renter passed away in 98. So all of a sudden, you know, and my mom called me and she said, "What am I going to do?" And uh, I said, "Well." I'll I'll start working on it. So I did. So it was really back in uh, late, like 1999, that I started to get involved in finding uh, another renter. And really looking at the place, there were uh, large areas of this place that I had never laid eyes on at the, at that point. Um, I, I'd seen, you know, the areas around the road and, and just a few of the other pastures, but there's a lot I did not know. And um, my first, uh, you know, discovery, what, what struck me as I was doing an assessment of it was the noxious weed problem. We had a horrible Canada thistle problem. Uh, this is a very hilly landscape and all, virtually all the draws. And there's a creek that runs through the place and uh, the, the creek, um, the banks of it, and it's a seasonal creek, it, it doesn't flow you around. But it was um, virtually, it was uh, the thistle, Canada thistle problem was so bad that I was advised to have the whole place aerially sprayed. And I was also advised, fortunately, by um, a very wise uh, range management counselor from the NRCS, uh, Dave Steffen. Uh, okay. Yes, he, he told me what would happen if we did. If I, did, if I did that, if I had the whole place aerially sprayed, he said, you're gonna lose all your broadleaf uh, diversity, you're gonna lose your wildflowers. And as soon as he said wildflowers, my decision was made, I knew I wasn't gonna be doing that. And so he actually coached me into how to approach this. And I decided I would rather use an effective chemical one time than an ineffective, an ineffective chemical year after year after year. And so that's what we started doing. My boys would come out here in the, um, Weed control season, we came out for the month of June, basically for a number of years and spent that time uh, spot spraying. Do you own your own livestock? No, as a matter of fact, I, uh, I love them and they are the reason that I, I don't know, yeah, I, I love them, I love the grassland management, but land without livestock is, uh, you know, it doesn't work. and. Uh, so I love cattle. I, like I said, I used to show them, but I don't want to do the South Dakota winters yep. by myself with, uh, you know, feeding cattle in blizzards and thawing the water out. So I get to enjoy them in the summertime and then uh, send them home and their renters will take care of that all, all winter and then bring them back to me in the spring. So you're a landowner and you, I believe you have two renters now, one for your rangeland and then one for the uh, uh, previously irrigated alfalfa land? Right, sub-irrigated. Sub-irrigated. So, so talk to me about that, just a little bit, your relationship with your 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 renters. Well, um, I, after having some um, 
I guess you could say fails of misunderstandings with, with different renters. Um, I learned to uh, lay it out. That, well, I learned that I, I can't be, I'm not a, a passive landowner that will just watch disaster happen and say nothing. And uh, so I learned to be very upfront with, uh, with my renters. And, uh, you know, we have a contract and the contract says that I will decide when to move cattle and where to move them. And uh, so it's a trust relationship. You know, I have their best interests at heart and they know that. And uh, they, they know that I love their cattle and worry about them probably more than they do sometimes. But um, yeah, I, I do my very best to, to do the very best for them. So I, I make those decisions. And you know what I do, uh, I was talking to someone about uh, how I manage the grazing and rotating the pastures. And basically we're set up with the size of pastures we have and the size of herds that we have. We can I can move them uh, every four to seven days, except earlier in the spring, I'd like to move them faster than that when the grass is young and growing. But um, someone said to me one time, well, you have to think about not just what's good for the pastures, but what's good for the cattle too. And I just thought, did you hear yourself? You know, How can you think about what's good for the pastures? What's best for the pastures is also going to be best for the cattle. If I want uh, lush grass, uh, that is, that's my goal. And uh, managing for optimum nutrition to come out of that grass. So anyway, and that's of course best for the cattle. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, some of the moving that you do, the, the rotation. So my understanding, uh, may I use the name of uh, your your one renter? Is that okay? I think so. Yeah, he he said you you know to do that. Okay. Yeah, because he was interviewed by Joe Dickey as well. So it's Mark Gurkey. What what I found real interesting was right off the bat he said, you know he um, I don't think his uh, his granddad uh, ranched, but not his dad. So he's a first generation guy. But he said he learned a lot about rotational grazing and soil health from you. So, you know, I thought that that was, that was high praise. You know, you've got someone from the city who got interested in this and is passing that on. So I thought that was good. And then I noticed that, uh, I guess when you want to move the cows, you just give Mark a call and then he comes over and you open a gate and, and the girls march in, is that right? Well, and that's early on. And Mark was very generous in his praise. I have learned a lot from him as well. So that was nice of him to say that. But um, early on in the season, uh, when the calves are young and they don't know what's going on yet, yeah, Mark and, uh, comes over and, and helps me. And then once the cows get trained in and the calves get trained in, then I, I do it by myself. Okay. Yeah, and they come when I call. Yep. Do you have a specific call for them? I do. Okay, are you a lot? Do you want to use it? <laughs> Come on! <laughs> you know, you know what the three great uh, the three great um, feelings of power in the universe are. It's wealth, fame, and the cows come when I call. <laughs> well, I know the first two are, are just not obtainable at, at my age, so I'm going to try moving cows then. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so you you're 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 a, a landowner. You don't own your own animals, but you often move the animals for your renters. 
and then um, you're also determining when those animals move based on your observation. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay, so that's that's a, a quite a unique thing, isn't it? Well, um, less so than it used to be. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know if I would say it's really unique. I learned it from the guys that are doing it, and the South Dakota Grassland Coalition guys were amazing mentors. They were my and you know guys like Dave Steffen. Yeah. Um, and and then the Soil Health Coalition people too. Uh, the yeah, but the Grassland Coalition guys are, are mentors. They do this. They've got uh, it's just the way they do things. And seeing the results, um, you know, you can talk to people. Somebody might say, "Oh, well, you know, that's not going to work," you know, why, or something. You know, if they don't have a vision for it. But when you see the results, and I, that was what opened me up to doing things this way. Was that I. Uh, you know, there's a ranch that we used to pass by that was uh, years ago that was badly overgrazed and uh, habitually for, for decades had been overgrazed. And then I noticed that grass was coming back there. And I asked uh, at that time, it was a, a renter that lived here. Uh, I said, what, what's going on? You know, they've got grass over there. And he said, oh, they're doing this thing. They move the cattle all the time. I don't know what it's all about. So I went and talked to him and said, what do you do? You know, how, how did this happen? And they told me, about the Grassland Coalition and uh, and actually told, told me about Dave Steffen too. So yeah, but seeing is believing. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it certainly is. Um, you were talking a little bit earlier about, um, I'm particularly interested right now in uh, cool season invasive grasses. You were talking about Kentucky bluegrass and um, getting after the, the, the brome as well. Could you could you talk about how you're managing that at the moment? Um, well, yeah, yeah, it's it's tricky. Uh, it's very tricky, and it's a balance again. Talk about working with my renters because um, you know the the Kentucky bluegrass uh, it will start making a seed head like May seventh, May tenth, very Good. very early in the season. Yeah, you've got. Yeah, it's the first one to green up as well, isn't it? It is. Yep, it greens up. And so they need to be out there. And I, I just, uh, you have to be bold to get cattle out there early. And then when I've got pears, and my renter does have uh, cow-calf pears, and those baby calves, um, you know, they're just not ready to, to, it's not especially good for them to be moving them rapidly. So that's something that I, I balance. I uh, really like my renters. I value them. They've been very um, good to work with me and the on the things that I I want to do. Um, and so that's something. Uh, this this year they're going to bring me uh, their fall cows, and so they can get them here earlier, and I can move them more rapidly early. So that'll be that will help with that. But it's just getting it out there early. Yeah. And. Uh, yeah, letting letting them work that brome grass, and it's tricky again because I've got lots of hills and a very hilly landscape. And um, if you leave them on a an area too long, they will make paths, cow paths, going down those hills. And uh, then if I get a torrential rain, or when we get uh, torrential rain, that'll wash out. So um, those are things I have to balance. And also, I talked about. You know, because this place has a history of thistle infestation, I have to be very careful not to, um, you know, I, I'm, 
I'm very, very concerned about setting the grass back to the degree that I'll have thistles take over again. So it's yeah. a balance, yeah. Yeah, so you're you're grazing early, but not necessarily down to the ground. I, I guess if you graze down to the ground, uh, possibly you're hurting some of your other native species. Is that correct? I got, I got, well, I, I can I can allow space for Canada thistles. I have to be ready for it. If I'm if I'm looking to bring back those warm season grasses, I have to uh, beat up the cool season grasses enough to leave open space. And like uh, the pasture that I did first last year. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't open it up enough. I, I didn't put enough pressure on it because we didn't see any blue stem in the fall last year. Uh, I, I it worked out really well. We saw a good increase in blue stem from doing that. Yeah, so that sounds like an art more than a science, isn't it? I guess you, you're yes. you're having to look at the animals. You're looking your pasture all the time. Yeah, so you're basically doing a, adaptive grazing management. I, w I was curious if you see any another thing that's interested me. Are you seeing any native cool season grass like uh, um, uh, uh, western wheat grass or uh, um, uh, green needle grass or needle and thread or, or even porcupine grass? I do, I do. Um, I don't especially like the needle and thread or the yeah, and the porcupine grass, whatever you call it. Uh, but yes, we I do see those. They have a lot of competition with the brome grass too. There's yep. the, blue, the bluegrass is very early, and then brome grass is right behind it. Bluegrass will make a seed head, like I said, the you know May seventh or May tenth. So yeah. you really want to make sure that they're not yeah putting that seed out, yeah, yeah, keeping them vegetative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So that that's that's interesting. Um, you also um, you talked about soil health. You learned that sort of over the years from the Soil Health Coalition and the the grazing lands folks. Is that correct? Right. Yes. And I love YouTube. <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. Yeah, it it <laughs> gives us a lot. Yeah. And Savory, Christine Jones, and uh, yeah, all the, the yeah. Great I, w I was curious, you know, if we're talking about soil health and rangeland health and plant health, um, you you made a connection between uh, gut health um, and and human health as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe could you talk a little bit about it and and how that would apply to the health of the land as well? Absolutely. You know, it's fascinating. I was just stunned when I learned that there are that the bacteria that grow in our gut the beneficial bacteria in our gut are many of them the same beneficial bacteria that are in the soil that was just, you know that was astounding to me and uh you know the first thing i thought of was in the beginning god created he formed man out of the dust of the earth and i thought wow that seems like scientific evidence that man <laughs> was formed out of the dust of the earth what other explanation could there be yeah but it is awesome, uh, you know, to think that we, you know, we talked about we're not going to poison our way to good health, and yet we seem determined to try and do that. And uh, you know, the use of antibiotics and uh, you know hand sanitizers and all kinds of things to uh, kill germs, kill germs, kill germs, and. You know, I just listened to, uh, are you familiar with, Dr. Christine Jones has a video called Why Change? And I would recommend that to any of your viewers if you have anybody, uh, soil, soil Health Geeks, 
uh, or want to be soil health geeks. She is fabulous. And she talks about the human health aspect. She starts, why change? And she starts out with uh, what is happening to human health on this planet? And then what is happening to soil health on this planet? Uh, I keep referring to her, but I love her, Dr. Christine Jones, talking about the benefits of uh, the, the life that's in the soil, the quantity of life that's in the soil and the quantity of life that is on our bodies and you know, beneficial bacteria that live on us and viruses, the, you know, thousands and thousands of beneficial viruses. And how come, you know, why don't we hear about that? It, it is um, a, a new and emerging idea. And I just heard recently, uh, read recently that someone is promoting probiotic cleaners. And years ago, uh, when I was at South Dakota State University majoring in animal science, I took a bacteriology course. And at the end of bacteriology, when he had, you know, we had a three hour lab, we had uh, well, what was a lecture, you know, three hours of lecture, whatever it was each week. And at the end of that class, when we we're all thinking, I don't want to touch anything because everything is loaded with bacteria. At the end of that class, the very last day, he said, you know, you're, he told us you're covered with friendly flora, you know, friendly bacteria that you need and don't over sanitize. And so that set us all free. But then, and for years I've looked for them to come out with a probiotic. I remember telling a nurse one time, you know what we need are probiotic hand cleaners. And uh, I think that that's going to be the future. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I um, spent some time with a potato farmer in, in Colorado and a man by the name of Brendan Rocky. Uh, and we did uh, we did a film series and he talked about taking a probiotic approach to potato farming because you can't no-till potatoes, uh, but he makes up for it through diversity and then um, he, he uses things like compost and things like that. And so he's found that, um, you know, his neighbors might use pesticides for the um, uh, uh, for the aphids that are a vector for a potato mosaic virus, and he's not. And they did a study uh, using the probiotic approach versus pesticides, and they were about equal compared to no treatment at all. So that was that was something really interesting. Um, I, I guess that also segues into I, I think you. You don't pour for flies or anything like that. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. A couple of years ago, uh, well, I told I told my renter I only had one at that time. I said I am going to be Audubon certified uh, as bird friendly land. That was some a goal I was working toward. And I said we won't be using poron. You know, does that work for you? And he said we can make that work. So uh, we started doing. Um, actually started feeding garlic and uh, and baking soda and vinegar free choice baking soda free choice vinegar and i mixed the vinegar 50 50 um half water half vinegar and then baking soda in a separate uh container and i've got a divided tub with a flap a rubber flap over the top for those and then he brings his his mineral that he wants them to have and uh and then we've got, and then I mixed garlic in with the salt. And so they had, we called it pre-seasoned beef. No, but it, yeah. Uh, 
Because we're going for fly control and we're not, I am not satisfied with the amount of fly control that we get out of that. I think we need to do better. We're looking into fly traps. And uh, I actually did another method that I can tell you, but I, before I forget this, I want to tell you um, that the side effect of using the, vin the vinegar, baking soda, and the garlic, and I think it's a combination of all three. I've had people tell me that they just used garlic and didn't get the same effect, <laughs> but we have had virtually no, this year we had one case of pink eye and no foot hoof rot. Last year was a very bad pink eye year. There were, I don't know, there were several cases of pink eye. I'm not sure exactly how many we treated. There were several, but not anything like you would find in herds that weren't treated that way. And uh, I don't think there was any hoof rot last year either. But anyway, they can tell, I, I believe that Mark would tell you that there is a significant reduction in animals that he has medicated since he's doing that. And it's not that hard, you know, to do the baking soda and vinegar. I just put it in that feed tub and uh, they, they will go for it. You know, they, at first when they walk up and sniff that vinegar, it's like, whoa, you know, they, they back off, but then they'll, they'll take a taste and you can just see their, their wheels go around. They're thinking, yep, yep it's doing something. Yep. And the same with the baking soda. This, the herd uh, would go through a 50 pound bag of baking soda a day when I started putting it out for the first week, I think. And then they, they kind of got things taken care of that they needed to take care of. And then it slacked off after that. But we figured at prices a couple of years ago, two years ago when we first did this, um, it was eight cents a day per cow is what we figured the cost was on it. And, uh, and I believe that was for the garlic too, if I remember correctly. And we did a garlic oil pour on that helps for a period of time. Um, I, you know, and probably maybe help with the pink eye too. I made garlic oil and uh, when they put them through the chute to AI them in Ju July, they poured it on. And uh, then this year I got a sprayer that would spray oil and I got um, some bulk garlic oil, essential oil. And we did that and it works really good for a few days. And then, you know, it doesn't kill the flies, it repels them. But like I said, the general, the health, the herd of the health of the herd is better, but I'm not satisfied with um, the amount of live flies that we still have. Okay. Yeah. Right. I believe you said also that moving moving the animals does help as well, doesn't it? I think, yeah, I believe it does. Yeah. Uh, they say, you know, guys, they'll, I've heard that to really, really have it be effective, it has to be like more than a mile move. And okay. that's not real practical for, no. yeah. Talk to me about, uh, are you seeing dung beetles? Um, are, are you having a look at the dung piles and what's happening? Are they decomposing a lot faster now? Yes, it's exciting to see that. I don't see, I'm not a dung beetle expert. I do, I see them where I didn't see them before. And what I don't see is huge piles of manure from the year before that are still sitting there looking at me next year. And uh, I, I graze my yard. I let the cows, I put a, I put a hot wire right around my house and <laughs> I have a yard party and the cows come in and my grass is in much better shape around my house since I've been doing that. But um, yeah, somebody said, watch where you step, you know? 
but they um, they break down much faster than they did when the animals were treated. Yes. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. We'd like to briefly interrupt this episode for a little bit of an announcement. Yeah, well, Lynn Betts, who um, works with us as a journalist and writer, uh, has written a six-part series called Remembering the Rs uh, on Rotate, Rest and Recovery. And in each one of these articles, he's featured a farmer or rancher in South Dakota. These um, articles are now in Tri-State Livestock News. So please go to Tri-State Livestock News and have a look at what they've said. We think this is a fantastic message that we've been able to put out there. So we hope that we're presenting a really balanced and effective way of starting to look at rangeland and then also farmland in the Rotate Rest Recovery Continuum. Yes, yeah, so click on over to Tri-State Livestock News and you can find that there. We'll also do our best to try to include those links in the show notes. And now, back to the episode. You've brought in a lot of uh, your ideas uh, about human health and gut health and really applied them to, to the operation. It sounds like your your two renters are very receptive to this as well, which is, that's pretty wonderful, isn't it? They are, yes. Yeah, it, it, uh, it wouldn't work otherwise. And actually it didn't work otherwise. I, I you know, had to, we, we went through some cir- circumstances where it just didn't work, you know, not having the same vision and the same goals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the other the other thing that I heard Mark Gurky say that his calves, when he takes them from you, are about eighty pounds heavier than calves from other rented land. Is that? That's, that's what he has said. Yes. Yeah. So so we're actually seeing that the gains on the animals as well. Um, yeah, and he would, like I said, he would be happy to to talk with you. I believe, you know, about that if you have questions. And and my other renter too, uh, Dennis. Hoyle. Yeah, yeah, Dennis Hoyle. Yeah. Well, uh, talk to me a, a little bit about uh, what you're doing with the sub-irrigated alfalfa land. Um, okay, that that has been a, an experiment. I was going to say a fun experiment, but it's been a lot of work. Um, Dennis brings me uh, about 60 head of steers, and last year he brought me his yearlings, and we, uh, you know, I spent uh, about a week conditioning them. I've got an area of grass that has uh, a lot of alfalfa and a lot of grass, and I put them in there so they get used to eating grass but still have a lot of access uh, to alfalfa. And uh, when they're, we felt like sufficiently conditioned to the taste of alfalfa so they wouldn't be so inclined, you know, they'd know how to balance themselves. Then I turned them on to the sub-irrigated alfalfa and just gave them a little tiny bit. And we were, we were really cautious. Dennis was here when I did it and kind of, you know, we weren't sure. We had bloat blocks available to them. And um, then also the baking soda and vinegar uh, available to them and the garlic as well. But um, yeah, I, I just really limited what they had alfalfa that they had access to and always make sure that they had plenty of grass access because I was so concerned about bloat. 
And I should say we were so concerned about bloat. So anyway, uh, last year I just uh, did a lot of movement with them, very small, um, intense grazing. And it was a lot of work. And it, uh, there's a creek that goes through that area, but it doesn't flow season long. So we knew, I knew that we were gonna have to have water supply. So we did above ground water with uh, tanks and I was moving tanks and moving pipeline and um, moving. So the, 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 the pipeline was above ground then and then you were pulling the tank? Yes, and moving okay. tanks with it. So anyway, that was uh, kind of something I didn't want to do again. So this year we streamlined it or I streamlined it. And rather than doing the uh, small intensive moves, I divided the pasture into six uh, seg sections, figured we'd have, I, they could have probably a week in each one. I, I just kind of calculated, I think this will get them by for a week. And, uh, and then I installed three tanks along the pipeline. The pipe yep. was right down the middle. And, um, and then they could have access to one tank for two rotations. <clears throat> and that worked uh, really well. It wasn't nearly as much work, obviously. And, uh, and they did well on it. it. The challenge to that resulted early in the season with the alfalfa weevils. And uh, they were so bad this year. Last year, uh, they started out scary. And then we had a two and a half inch rainfall the first week of June. And good rain like that, cool rain does not work well for alfalfa weevils. So that kind of did them in. The alfalfa recovered really well and we had a great season. This year, we did not get a two and a half inch rain early and uh, the alfalfa weevils really uh, worked over the alfalfa. And uh, so much so that I was really concerned, you know, if, and Dennis and I talked about it, what if, you know, what if I don't have enough alfalfa? But we just kind of kept, uh, stayed with the program, kept one thing and one foot in front of the other, keep doing the right thing. And uh, it worked out well, the alfalfa recovered and we did have enough and I didn't, did not spray. I was determined not to spray all those beneficial insects in order to kill uh, alfalfa weevils. I know, I think it was Gabe, was it Gabe Brown or, uh, oh, I can't remember the other man's name. There are like 3,000 beneficial insects for every bad insect, every harmful insect. There are thousands of good insects. The, the number I've heard was 1,700, but you know, it's it's in that ballpark. I think the other thing, um, there's a there's a gentleman by the name of Francis Shabusu. He's dead now. He he was in France, but he also noted that the use of pesticide reduces the health of the plant. So if a plant is unhealthy, that's when it's set upon by uh, some of these things because the biological role of quote unquote pests is to kind of uh, um, you know, thin out the, the the unhealthy plants. And so this is why often you might find pests may move over one field and go to another field. So I think possibly as the soil gets healthier, you may find that that, that pressure reduces. But Mother Nature always throws something at us when we think we've learned something. There you go. There you go. Well, I'm hoping I've heard that weevils are cyclical. So and that's what I'm hoping is that whatever beneficials, uh, yeah, whatever beneficials we're not killing. And again, remembering that 40 years ago, you know, when I was a kid, we did not have uh, alfalfa weevils, never heard of them. 
So I'm guessing that their natural predator was keeping them in balance. And now that natural predator is probably gone. Yeah. And, uh, so that's... Same with the Canada thistles. You know, we had we had a little patch of Canada thistles in our place. And I remember asking my dad, what's that? And he said, oh, that's Canada thistle. Never, you know, never did anything. And uh, we never, never worried about it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting, some of the unintended consequences of our actions. <laughs> yeah, same with human health. I mean, we do the same thing with human health. Oh, you know, just jump to uh, drugs and pharmaceuticals when, and I always use the analogy of a cannon. You know, if you've got a fly in your house, <clears throat> you don't get out a cannon and start shooting at this fly. You get out a fly swatter and you go ping. Yeah. And the same with, with our health, you know. So you, you probably just need a little garlic or, you know, some other uh, herb, you know, something that, that God has created. <clears throat> Bring your system in balance, just nudge your system gently in balance, lay off the refined sugar and, and keep your body in balance. Yep. Rather than jump into a, a cannon and, and come in and blow the house apart, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, I, I haven't eaten, taken sugar in any of my food for probably six or seven years now so i'm i'm kind of i'm you're, you're pre preaching to the choir over here <laughs> genie um you're a landowner um you know very often when i speak to folks on this podcast it's more um you know rancher to rancher but i, I was wondering if you had any thoughts for other landowners, especially if they're non-operating landowners, what kind of advice would you give for them to uh, to see how they can, maybe they're living in the city or something, but they've got land out there. Can you advise them what to do, what kind of renters that they need to be looking for to, to turn their, their places around and frank, frankly increase the value of their land? You know, um, <clears throat> that's a really good question. I, I believe that as much as finding a really good renter, I think I would say visit the land, know your land. And, you know, uh, you, you've got to lay eyes on it and, um, you know, see it be a part of it. So, and I don't know if that's, like I said, it's in my blood to want to do that. Maybe it isn't in everyone's blood, but it, it's, a tr it's a trust relationship, you know, to have someone who cares about it as much as you do. Yeah. That's a rare and wonderful thing. And like I said, we had a renter on here for 35 years that did many, many things very, very well. And um, did he manage it the way my dad would have? No, you know, it's hard to find a renter that will manage it as well as you will manage it, as the owner will manage it. So, yeah, <clears throat> yeah I, I just think that there's nothing like knowing. And, and I would say, too, listen to Alan Savory. If, if you're a landowner who doesn't know much, you know, about the land, uh, Alan Savory's TED Talk is classic. And Dr. Christine Jones is, um, you know, she's, that maybe going more for the geek, INS, that the soil geeks, 
but uh, man, there's a lot of good information there. I've listened to her uh, Why Change video three times and I intend to listen to it some more because it's, you know, some of it's heavy, interesting. I mean, it's, it's not something you listen to with half your brain. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's intense. And uh, what are some other good ones? Gabe Brown has got some excellent uh, information. There's just so much. And Greg Judy uh, is a good, you know, and Alan Savory, um, Alan Williams. I mean, there are just some wonderful gurus on that. There's so much information that's available to us and, and knowing. And then, like I said, the South Dakota Grassland Coalition, and I'm sure there are other coalitions too that have, uh, there's a lot of information uh, that we can just click on with our finger. We, quite frankly, we have no excuse for as landowners for not uh, informing ourselves and knowing what's going on and knowing what, what's available and what we can do. Also, you know, as far as grazing managers go, I know um, for landowners that want to introduce livestock to their land, uh, if it's farmland, yeah. even grazing land, the uh, Soil Health Coalition has a grazing exchange. The South Dakota Grazing Exchange website, yeah. Yes. yes, that is a really good resource that you can go and look for people that have got their ear to the wall. But I guess if uh, I am, like I said, I keep saying I'm very grateful to the Grassland Coalition guys for uh, guiding me into uh taking care of the land yeah yeah that that that's it you know i guess one of the things i, I love about this culture with the soil health culture and the grazing land coalition culture it's not just south dakota but it's all over people seem to be very very eager to share these these nuggets you know and and along with that seems to come a, a degree of intellectual humility which I so admire. Mm -hmm. There's, I think there's a huge awareness, like maybe never before, that we're not going to poison our way to good health. Yeah, yeah. In, in human health, in, in healthy soil, healthy livestock, it, it's all interrelated. And uh, yeah, there, there's, and I know uh, having suburban connections like I do, my daughter lives in California now in, in Pasadena area. And uh, her friends, I mean, they're very concerned about pesticides, you know, what they're feeding their children. Yeah. And clean food. People want clean food. And, you know, people will say, oh, well, they're not willing to pay for it. And, you know, and I think that's the, the challenge for us is to give them clean food at affordable prices. And conventional agriculture, um, I don't know, I won't go there. There's just a, a lot, I think we can do a lot better. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's very interesting. Um, I, I really liked what Cody Zilverberg was saying. Uh, he's uh, um, he's over at Dakota Lakes, uh, and he was talking about, you know, should we be looking to um, brand our beef in a way like winemakers brand their wine? You know, in the sense that it has a particular taste, a terroir, based on the, the forbs and the diversity of species that they're eating. So I, I'm hoping to see a lot more um, uh, a lot more progress in that area. I, I know that there's a huge demand for grass-fed beef in the city, mm -hmm. and, and I speak under correction, but am I mistaken in saying 
80% of that grass-fed beef comes from Australia? <laughs> I, I couldn't, uh, I don't have access to that. That's scary, but I have heard uh, Argentina, uh, yes, uh, foreign. It is foreign, foreign beef. And yeah, that's a travesty. Do you know, speaking to what you said about the you know, branding our beef and the flavors, I want to tell you this little story. Um, a friend of mine who ranches in another state visited recently and was telling me about marketing his grass-fed beef. And yep. he, he took uh, several pounds of ground beef to a local pizza shop. And uh, he said they feature locally sourced food. You know, that their pizza ingredients are locally sourced as much as they can. So he took this to the, the uh, pizza shop and, and the guy said, I do not pay $4.85 a pound for ground beef, I'm sorry. And the guy said, well, just keep the sample. And, you know, if you ever have a need, call me. And he left. And he said, it was several days later, he got a call from the guy. And he said, can you get me 40 pounds? He said, I got to tell you what happened. He said, I made two pizzas. I made one with your ground beef. And I made one with the ground beef that we always use. And he said, I set them out for my employees. He said, every single, and everything else in the pizza was identical. He said, every single employee said, that one is the best. And they could tell that there was something special about his grass-fed beef. And uh, he said that was about six or seven years ago. And every two weeks since then, he has delivered 40 pounds of grass-fed beef to that pizza shop. And uh, so anyway, yeah, you can. There's so, yeah, it's, it, it's doable, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, it th there was something else that I read about you. Um, Talk to us a little bit about the water quality that's coming off your land these days. I think you were, well, uh, let me stop there and let you talk. Uh, the water quality coming off, like runoff, do you mean? Well, you were talking about the stream. You've got an ephemeral stream running through mm -hmm. your property. And um, have you seen improvements in water quality, uh, reductions in erosion? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I, yeah, with rotating them, my goal is to, you know, my goal is to see no dirt at any place on, on this, you know, on this ranch. And I want it all covered at all times. And, uh, you know, that isn't always possible. Sometimes the cows will get into a bank and they got to rub their heads on it. They like doing that. But, um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, my, and if there is water runoff, which there is with a torrential rain, I want to see it run clear and uh, and the stream run clear. So yeah, there should be, there. my goal is no, uh, you know, no banks exposed. Now down there where the steers are grazing, I'm going to have to be really careful because they, they graze across the creek and I let them do it twice in a season for two years now, I'm gonna to have to do something different. And uh, I'm not, I haven't figured that out yet. But okay. that managing that is uh, a challenge. I wish I could move that creek <laughs> to a different, you know, along the edge of where they have to be grazing. But, but actually we can probably do some things with different fencing in the future. Yeah, yeah. I've seen some really good results with, uh, this is in, in the Carolinas now with, um, flash grazing animals um, across a creek and then taking them off. And it seems like, you know, that trampling the um, the banks down a little bit and pugging and creating a little bit of roughness to reduce the speed of flow that the, feed, the, that the, that the stream has. And 
with a, with a little bit of seeding, those stream banks seem to be a lot less steep mm -hmm. and uh, uh, certainly well vegetated. It's all about management, isn't it? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else in terms of maybe helping people, especially people who are landowners and may not be operating landowners? Is there a way that folks can read a little bit more or get hold of you? I guess if they could contact me through my local um, NRCS office, that would be good. Jordan. And are you also with the soil health, uh, with the grassland coalition? You're still working with them. Yeah, they could contact me through the grassland coalition. Yeah, because yeah. it's yeah, because it sounds like you know you can speak to landowners very well on this. Um, certainly, there's no shortcut to education here, but yeah. you, you can help them get in the right direction. I can. Yeah, I could. I could point them in the right direction. I can point them to the people who really are good good mentors and trainers, yeah. Well, this has been a fabulous, a fabulous time to chat. Um, I'm, I'm going to sign off, but um, thank you. Thank you so much for chatting. And oh, I think uh, when we're in Chamberlain next time, I'll, I'll give you a call and see if we can come visit with you. That would be good. Yeah, don't, don't do it in January, probably, though. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, you take care and thank you. It was nice to talk with you. I'm glad to meet you after hearing so much about you. Well, wonderful. It's been so good to talk to you as well, Jeannie. Okay, you take care. All right, All right. you too. Well, how's that for a super involved landowner, Buzz? Yeah, she is definitely a silo, and we are hoping to have more and more silos in the state of South Dakota as we go on. Uh, hopefully that becomes an example to the rest of the mm. country. Uh, you have a silo uh, who's super involved with her land and all of a sudden you hear the crickets, you hear the insects, you hear the birds, the wildlife, and you've got productive gra grassland. Uh, you know, what's not to like with that? But um, I, I wanted to, I, I did promise that I wanted to read some props to Jeannie's sons uh, because she 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 uh, she wrote to me later on and she said as i mentioned before my big regret regret in is neglecting to mention the hundreds and hundreds of man hours that the boys and i put into manual labor on musk thistle control when the soil is moist enough they easily pull with leather gloves when you get tired of that it, or it gets too dry we use a small hoe that was made by a local rancher specifically for this job to hack them off about an inch below the soil surface. There are many good things that we can say about manual labor that connects us to the land. Physical exercise, outdoors, in the sunshine and fresh air, and seeing and feeling the land. I always do my best to inspire people that the secret to successful weed control is don't let them go to seed. So uh, that, that was Jeannie's, uh, Jeannie's thing. So um, th that was her thing with musk thistle. Um, in, in a few podcasts ahead of this or uh, uh, after this, uh, we'll be talking to Pat Guptill, who talks about uh, how he uses cows to uh, manage uh, some Canadian uh, thistle. Now, I'm not sure what the differences are between the two, but it's kind of interesting to see how these folks get going. But it was a delight to speak to Jeannie, and uh, I'm hoping that 
when we go back to South Dakota, we can at least meet with her and go from there. And um, if any of you has a look at our um, uh, fact sheets and information sheets, you might see a picture of her. I think she has a, 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 a vibrant pink outfit uh, on one of the pictures and she's moving cattle there with, with, with a big old straw hat. So that's that's genie for you. I'm gonna have to check out that picture for myself. I don't think I've seen that. <laughs> it's it's Ma- pretty maybe good. I can pull that and use that as a thumbnail for this episode. Well, okay. Let's well, see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then of course Joe Dickey, I believe, uh, took that picture. Mm. Well, speaking of Joe Dickey, we've got an episode with him down the line, but our next one up is with Miranda Meehan, who is an NDSU Extension Livestock Environmental Stewardship Specialist. Yep. Uh, so we get some brains uh, in here, and uh, Miranda is certainly about time. But is, are you saying something <laughs> about me? <laughs> but Miranda really um, has some broad knowledge, and I think really relevant, especially to some of the drought that we are looking at coming in, uh, possibly for the second year. Beautiful. Well, as always, check out the show notes uh, for free resources from the NRCS. Please give this podcast a rating, share it with any friends if this was useful for you. And as always, once again, don't forget to remember the R's. Rotate, rest, and recover. Beautiful. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. Keep it resilient. Resilient.